We're doing something a little different today and reposting one of our most popular episodes of all time, an interview with Dan John that we conducted over a year ago. If you've ever wondered about the origins of his famous 10,000 kettlebell swing challenge, or you're just interested in busting fitness myths and misconceptions, this is an episode we know you'll enjoy. Now let's get to the show. The feedback we get from our athletes and your experiences and my experiences, that's what makes great coaching. And to me, that is one of the missing components in some of the people uh, in our era today. They're not having those conversations that allow their experiences to be shared with other experiences. Welcome to the Bar Bend Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your host, David Thomas Tao, and this podcast is presented by barbend.com. Today, I'm talking to renowned strength and conditioning coach Dan John, one of the most widely respected individuals in fitness. Dan's been in the industry for 40 years and has coached countless athletes across a variety of sports, though he's perhaps best known for his work with track and field. Dan takes a straightforward approach to strength and conditioning, and his programs, often called minimalist in their approach, have laid the groundwork for an entire generation of strength protocols. Dan is also well known for his 10,000 kettlebell swing program, which has been adapted many, many times across the internet. I even did my own version a few months back. Dan is among the best at identifying what works and what's just fluff in getting stronger. I hope you get as much out of this conversation as I did. I also want to take a second to say we're incredibly thankful that you listen to this podcast. So if you haven't already, be sure to leave a rating and review of the Barbend podcast in your app of choice. Now let's get to it. Dan, John, thanks so much for joining us. The first thing I have to ask about is a social post you put out a few days ago as of this recording about the 10,000 Swing Challenge, the 10,000 Swing Program, I should say. It's making a resurgence. Why do you think that is right now? Well, the, the, the quick answer is all you need is a single kettlebell or dumbbell, and uh, you can do it anywhere, anytime. Uh, I'm looking around my office right now, and I could easily do it in here. Uh, <laughs> But uh, what's interesting about it is uh, there's a story behind it, and I want to just real quick tell, tell you it. But of course, a few years back, uh, Teen Nation, Testosterone Nation, the publisher and the editors called me up and said, "You know, there's a whole bunch of people doing stuff about kettlebells, but we want you, you know, to give your insights." And I'm like, "Well, what do you want?" They go, "Well, how about a ten thousand swing challenge?" So now here's why this is interesting. Mike Brown and I went into my basement. And on day one, we figured, well, you know, 10,000 swings, 1,000 a day, 10 days, nailed it. So we did 1,000 swings on day one. Day two, we get it to swing 800. And famously, I looked at Mike and I said, we have to stop. And he goes, I goes why? I go, because I can't move. I had every, <laughs> every, from my hamstrings all the way straight up north to my spinal rectors was just like a rock. So we lightened it up to 500 swings in 20 days, and then we came up with all the little things as we went. Before, By the time I wrote that article, we had done 40,000 swings uh, to find the best ways to do it. And oddly, because of all the feedback, and, and David, I live on feedback. Uh, any good coach does. Feedback is the key 
to progressing an athlete or progressing anybody. And now we're to the point where I just tell people, do as many swings in a row as you can with good, and then put the bell down and just pick up from there. So start off with 13 swings, and then the next round you start at 14 and go to 31, and then next round 32 to go to, I don't know, 48, and just build up to 500 swings a day. But uh, the feedback I've gotten on this, uh, uh, people have lost noticeable amounts of body fat. Uh, the grip strength is amazing. Uh, the, the funny thing that keeps coming up is I feel taller. And of course, if you do hinges correctly, that's going to help out. It's, it's actually, David, I got to tell you, honestly, it's a bit of an honor uh, because in times like this where, you know, people are, people are scared, people are worried. And I know that physical exercise is going to do some good. It's quite nice to see so many people joining in these internet challenges, these Instagram things, uh, Facebook meet meetups to do the 10,000 swing challenge. And I, and I got to tell you from the heart, you know, uh, I, this is the kind of thing I'd love to be able to sit down with my mother and father and say, here's what I did guys. Uh, in a time of crisis, something I did made a difference. Well, I have to say, and this was before we went into the age of social distancing and social isolation in late February, I reread that article on T nation. Mm-hmm. And I decided to try and complete 10,000 swings in March on top of my normal training. Oh, right. Wow. Just do it, do it as a, as a supplement. I have, I have bells. I had recently moved into an apartment with a nice backyard. I wanted an excuse to get out of the routine, make myself get outside every morning. Right. Mm-hmm. So I start off on this and as things progress over the course of March, 2020, it becomes clear I'm not going to get access to my normal gym facilities. So the swings became a sort of solace for me, something I knew that was going to be consistent every day I was doing before quarantine. I was going to be doing after and during, you know, after that had already started. And there wasn't too much. I didn't do, I have to admit, I didn't do the original program, the original 10,000 swing challenge as it appears in its original form. But I chipped away at it, averaged, you know, 345, 330 a day, did some bigger mm. days, did it in the middle of some, some Metcons. And everything you say about grip strength, loss of body fat and body recomposition, and feeling taller, I experienced. And I was talking to some friends about this, and I said, you know, I feel bad. I didn't do D- Dan's original program. And they said, you know, Dan would probably be fine with that. I wanted your, your thoughts as, as far as my non-official 10,000 swing challenge. Well, let's. Uh, what's your last name, David? Tao. <laughs> well, you, as long as you're on the way, you are Ooh, doing the right thing. Yeah, you set you set that up so well. Yeah. Uh, the the idea behind uh, it, it, and this is what I talk about uh, about feedback. Uh, the the importance, the beauty of feedback. So you told me you do 330 a day, and my my correct response is that's fantastic did you get results? And you said, yeah, I feel taller, just like people said. Well, that's what we want. We want people, it's not, okay, it's nice to have the 10,000 swings and to be able to write up, and very often people drop the F-bomb, uh, F-bomb you, Dan, John, I finished the 10,000 swings. I, I see that a lot. And if I had feelings, it would hurt them. Um, but <laughs> the idea, it, it, and it's great to have that goal, but I, I just have to argue that the process, uh, and this is one of my key coaching points, 
is that the journey, the process is always more important than some imagined uh, result. And what, what, what's nice about what you experienced is you got a basic understanding of everything that I wanted you to get out of the, out of the challenge. Um, and, and it doesn't have to be the finish line of 10,000 swings. 10,000 horrible swings will probably do more damage than good mm-hmm. for you. So, yeah. so it, I wouldn't even say this is a nuanced point. I mean, to me, this is just the way good training goes. You, you get yourself on the path, the way, uh, the Tao, and one day you wake up and it's like, you know, I feel pretty good. Uh, I look pretty good, and I'm happy I did this. Now, you've been in the industry for a long time. Uh-huh. You've worked with so many different types of athletes. Not to date you too much there, by the way. I meant That's that okay. I meant that in a positive way. And the thing about the fitness industry over the last 10 years, we've seen so many cycles up and down, at least from my perspective here. On- uh, no offense, David. You have no idea. <laughs> um, so I've been lifting weights and reading about lifting weights since 1965. Mm-hmm. I've been paid as a coach since 1979. I am shocked sometimes that people will come out and say, this is my original work. And I can pick up Irving Dardick's book from 1984 and say, well, it's your original work, but he said it in 1984. Mm-hmm. I can pick up Phil Maffetone's book from 86 and say, yeah, I know you said this is original, but he said it before. There are stretches that people name they, when you put your own name on a stretch. And I can pull up uh, uh John Jerome staying supple and say, listen, you are literally following the exact same set of exercises. Uh, certain things keep coming back. The, the whole new thing that's come back is the one set only program has come back. And I, mm-hmm. and I keep thinking we keep burying the zombie and it keeps coming back. Uh, high intensity is the answer to all questions. By the way, uh, high intensity works. Uh, density works. Volume works. Everything works. But you have to be, you have to have some concept of where to put it appropriately into everything we do. Where do you think, what do you think is the concept that, that today in, you know, first, the first half of 2020, people are overcomplicating too much when it comes to strength and conditioning training? Oh, I, I mean, this is going to sound so <laughs> a bit of a vapid answer, but um, everything. Uh, we have taken a very simple concept. Let me give you nutrition real quick. Mm-hmm. Veggies, water, protein. Okay, good. Let me give you recovery, sleep. Okay, let me give you training. You should train hard sometimes. You should go for long walks sometimes. You should train medium sometimes. There you go. I just summarized it all for you. That's, that's, that, that's it. End of the podcast. Dan, John, thanks. No, I'm <laughs> uh, here's, here's the problem, David, is I can't make a nickel off of telling you to drink more water and to sleep more. Now, here's one nice thing about this uh, quarantine, this uh, in place thing, uh, is that a lot of people are sleeping more. Mm. Uh, I, I, that's the one biggest bit of feedback I get. I'm getting people going, you know, I'm also taking, I'm sleeping nine hours and then I take a nap and I'm drinking water. Oh, okay. And when I train, I only have this one kettlebell. So I'm doing the 10,000 swing challenge. Uh-huh. How are things going? Ah, I look great. I feel great. And it's like, right. Because you stop. You took stupid out of your training and just went with simple. So we're, 
I, I will say this. The last few years have been better. I thought we took a major dip probably in about 2004. Oh, it probably snuck into uh, maybe a decade, maybe 14, where everything was, you know, I'm going I'm to do nobody. I can do 300 burpees faster than you can do 300 burpees. That stuff is starting to uh, vanish a little bit. And I think that's a real step forward. Uh, for the record, I hate burpees. I hate lunges. <laughs> um, I some of the stuff I <laughs> some of the stuff I see it just cracks me up. Uh, but, I got to I got to ask about 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 the burpee, mm-hmm. which which is not a new movement, right? It's actually no. named it's named after the inventor of, Royal, of the Royal burpee. burpee. Royal, Royal burpee. burpee. Royal burpee. People think burpees are something that was kind of like invented in the early two thousands. They're oh. they're as old as time. Basically, and, and here's a good question for you, David. How many did he recommend? Oh, I used to know this. We have an article on Barbed about the, the, the history of the burpee. Four. I want to say it was <laughs> four. And it is, and all it is is an assessment. Uh, it's like the, when I was young, we did the, the burpee as an assessment, a movement assessment. And then we did the Harvard step test um, for our cardiovascular test. And then we did one or two other things. And the problem is all these things then just got uh, honestly polluted. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Royal Burpee. Uh, yeah, impressive young man uh, from a great tradition of, of strength and conditioning. Um, I should have named the Gobble Squat the Dan John Squat. And and then when, yeah, actually sometimes I'm glad when I look online that it's not named after me. But yeah. just, just, just the Dan Squat. You got to make Dan. it nice and short. The Dan. The Dan. The Dan yes. The Dan of the Dow. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the Goblet Squad, I this might be apocryphal, and you need to correct me if I if I'm wrong here. But I once read that you said you could get athletes so strong with just a goblet squat with, I believe it was a 32 or a 40 kilo bell, mm-hmm. that you'd seen some athletes transfer that strength over fairly quickly to a 400 pound back squat, with the, with the goblet squat being the primary movement. Well, is that is there's more, there'd be more steps to that, but yes, mm. and 400 would be, would be high. But what would so the idea on that, David, is uh, there's a lot of us who've had these conversations. You got to be careful. You got to be very careful about. Uh, so, so, a bunch of us who've been around a long time, who threw the discus far, threw the hammer far, threw the shot mm-hmm. far, uh, coached a lot of people, we'll sit down at a gathering and go. After about 400 pounds, we don't see a lot of, uh, so once you back squat 400, and I'm talking about a real back squat where you go down and up, okay? Um, there's no knee wraps. There's, you know, there's, you're, yeah, it's just, you just show up in your t-shirt and shorts, you squat it and you go deep. After about 400, we don't really see a lot of benefit in going heavier. So you got to be careful here because you're going to have a thousand emails from people who say they squat seven, but it's a quarter squat, eight squat. Um, but what we found is with that ability to just do goblet squats with the 24 or the 32, work on work on form, work on what I call anaconda strength. Uh, that's, that's that internal pressure uh, mm-hmm. you stand up with. Uh, moving to the overhead squat, moving to the front squat, uh, very quickly, we're finding with with high level athletes, we didn't really need those those big back squat workouts anymore in a year or longer. They just didn't need them. 
my friend John Powell, former world record holder in the, in the discus once told me, he said, the only regret I have was heavy back squats. He, he said, you should only, I mean, I would have just done 225 for 10 and real snappy and get my squat strength from running hills and doing stadium steps. But here's the problem, David, no, and, and a lot of your listeners are going to miss this. We're talking about people who already had in the bank years of appropriate strength conditioning. Mm. And then you get to a point where you say, we just don't need to keep slamming our face against the wall. And that's when, that's when that statement would come out. Having said that, if I work with a uh, ninth grade, 10th grade, you know, a freshman, sophomore football team, if we focus on the goblet squat and then the overhead squat, uh, j- just with broomsticks in the beginning, um, we can get the same benefits as a, as a, a against an opponent doing uh, a heavy, uh, a, a, a pseudo powerlifting program in the high school uh, area because we're working, a, we're also working on mobility, flexibility, and total body movement. And mm-hmm. that's going to pay dividends downstream, downstream. Twice I've used the word. Let, hey, it works. It, it, it certainly paints a picture. Let's talk a little bit about mobility and flexibility work because when in talking about that that very basic strength and conditioning program, for example, a high school athlete, mm-hmm. you mentioned that as an as an integral part. Yeah. So let's make sure we have the word straight. Now, so I use joint mobility as the free movement of the joints, and as we age, that's my. I have two concerns as you age: the loss of lean body mass and the loss of joint mobility. So I like to introduce joint mobility as early as I can, to, just so that the person knows a toolkit that'll carry on when they're in their 60s and 70s. They'll they'll have this memory of what to do. Flexibility is now we used to say stretching the muscles, but now we're not even sure about what we stretch. But what flexibility is is elongating those other tissues that are between the joints. And I used to be a lot more specific than that. But what I've been told by really smart people is we're not even sure what that means anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, Flexibility tends to be a neurological trick. So if I was to put you under anesthetics, you would have absolutely perfect flexibility in in everything we test you on. But the moment you started to come to, you would start to stiffen up, so to speak. So... Flexibility is often tricking uh, the nervous system into letting go. Um, so, but there's great value in some of this because as you start to to get a athlete bigger and stronger, literally larger, uh, they also need to make sure everything is still in uh, a bit of harmony. Uh, and since we're uh, they're a kind of a yin and yang, if you will of strength mobility strength on one side power on one side but also with agile uh, mobility and flexibility so you want to make sure you have a knitted athlete uh, uh I, I like the word tapestry but that doesn't always help some people but uh, i want a knitted athlete an athlete that uh, is clearly stronger clearly larger but also um their joints move a little better and they have their their, their flexibility hasn't hasn't regressed at all they they stay even though they're maybe 20 30 pounds heavier they still have the same basic flexibility they had before it, it, so as they get larger they don't uh, get tighter 
And how are you making sure that's emphasized and prioritized in a in a holistic strength and conditioning program? That's are you great, doing that's a great term, yeah. holistic. I like that. Uh, so first off, I suggest you pick ex, uh, movements that emphasize it. So we we use uh, Tim Anderson's uh, now we use Tim Anderson's original strength. That's a lot of groundwork uh, mobility. But for example, the goblet squat and the overhead squat almost by almost by definition, insist on mobility and flexibility. So by emphasizing the deep position, the goblet squat and the overhead squat, uh, okay, and then we slide up to the front squat. Well, to front squat, you have to have upper carriage flexibility and mobility, wrist, elbow, shoulder flexibility and mobility. So sometimes just by picking exercises, you can do that. Uh, I think the bench press has great value, but the one arm bench press makes that hand slide down. And if you keep the other hand free, it turns the bench press into a full body movement. Uh, if you ever want to find out how your abs work, do a heavy one arm bench press. And as that weight starts to pull you off, off, off the bench, watch how you stay on. You stay on by lighting up the other leg and then the entire column or core. So by picking certain exercises, you can keep doing this. Another good example, I'm a big fan of the one-arm press. Uh, and the reason I like the one-arm press, well, it, there's a, a hundred reasons, but um, I, I believe that done correctly, you get a, a real sense of keeping that, the whole shoulder girdle engaged. Uh, okay, you can't see my arm here, but I'm doing one-arm presses. And I'm moving through a whole range of motion. So sometimes just by exercise selection, by the way, and, and David, I think that's foundational. There's two things I ask first. Uh, first is what equipment do you have? And that, number two is what exercises do you know? Because I think exercise selection leads us to uh, proper exercise selection can deal with your mobility, strength, power, hypertrophy, body composition, all those things by just proper exercise selection. If all you do is go, you go to a gym that just has, and you do the same nine machines every time, you're going to have some serious gaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was that helpful? That was extraordinarily helpful. You actually answered not only my original question, but the next two I was going to ask. So I'm okay. here scrambling to find, <laughs> to find my, no, no, I do have a next question queued up. And given that foundational basis of, of, movements and understanding that exercise selection is crucial to one's development as an athlete, not only with strength and power, but but mobility, flexibility. Let's talk a little bit about training frequency. Your approach to recovery, it's quite simple. Eat well, sleep a lot, take some long walks, vary the intensity of your training. Right. But when it, when it comes to training frequency, a big question that I've seen pop up a lot since a lot of us went into you know shelter in place and quarantine mm -hmm. or training at home is, well, you know, does my training frequency go up if I'm lifting lighter weights more right, more frequently? What kind of principles do you keep in mind when assessing training frequency for an athlete? Well, now, now you have to let's let's break it out just a little bit, okay? Because sure, we're going to have, have a team sport issue, and then we're going to have an individual sport issue. Which one would you like me to cover? Let's cover the individual sport one primarily, if you don't mind. Yeah, no problem at all. Um, okay, so. The first thing I do when I work with a, uh, if someone says, Dan, will you help me? The first thing we do is we map out how many hours a week do we want to uh, deal with this? And let's, let's start at like a, 
a lower end athlete. And I'm going to say 10 hours a week. And that's just because I picked that out of my head. There is no, there's, uh, there's, there's no reason that I picked 10 hours. Oh, I could, could have said five hours, but five hours actually. And you know, David, remind me about five hours in a minute and we'll get back to that. So if you give me 10 hours, basically what I'm going to say, 80% of your time should be on your sport or what your goal is. So if you're a fat loss client, 80% of the time uh, should be meal preparation, planning menus, uh, going shopping, coming home and chopping vegetables, uh, chopping up whatever, the chicken or the salmon or whatever you got, uh, preparing meals, preparing easy to make things because fat loss happens in the kitchen. My good friend Josh Hillis always talks about body, re, uh, he says uh, about body recomposition, you said recomposition, and we call it body composition, but um, the hardest workout of the week should be your shopping. Uh, you know, if you're going to take those drinks, you know, the monster drink and all that nonsense, you know, you get your shopping list, man, you know, you go shopping, you chop vegetables. That's the most important workout of the week is your shop and food prep for, for, for body composition. But say you're a discus thrower or a swimmer or whatever, 80% of your time should be in the pool or throwing. The other 20% of your time would be in getting stronger, more powerful, more flexible, more mobile, basically a, a traditional strength and conditioning. Um, now, how you blend that through the week, now that's going to be the realities of your schedule uh, that's me realize your schedule. I'm about to say my schedule, but I'll work with you on that. So, you know, all of a sudden you sit back and you go, we said the athletes can work out 10 hours a week. Eight are going to be doing the sport, which by the way, is not bad in a week. And two are going to be training in the weight room. If we break that up into four sessions, that's four half hour sessions, uh, which means in those half hour sessions, uh, I'm going to have to make sure we get a lot done. Uh, you know, we have to be very spot on. So, um, ideally, if you're a, a, a thrower, those days would be, you know, snatch, clean, and jerk, front squat, farmer walk, or snatch, clean, farmer walk, or, you know, ideally, we'd get some hill sprints out, out on the field to play. But that's how I would break it out first. Um, so, what you're going to see is that the strength and conditioning coach is very supportive of the other goal sets. Um, and now the thing you're going to say is, well, wow, in that time, in that two hours a week in the weight room, you know, we're going to have to really be really on task when we're in there. And that's when hard discussions about exercise selection. Personally, I'd love to see you snatch and clean and jerk for your thrower. Uh, rest periods. Well, if you're snatching and clean and jerking, you know, we're going to have to get, we have to be really on on target here, uh, which is why I, I tend to move to things like the one lift a day program with throwers who don't have a lot of time. <clears throat> if you have four sessions a week, uh, session Monday is power snatch, Tuesday is front squat, uh, Thursday is clean, and Friday is bench press or press. And that's how we're going to train things. Now, that would be a little bit a, a higher end athlete than a new lifter, uh, a new thrower, okay? So that's how I do it. So you have to stand back, really, you have to stand back first and look at the amount of time available, uh, the amount of energy and resources going into practicing the sport or 
the dietary stuff. But, and by the way, diet, uh, diet, fat loss, that is one of the most difficult things the human body can do. So it, you need to look at fat loss like an athlete. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I tell you one thing, I'm going shopping on Sunday, bro. Yeah, bro. Chop those vegetables. That's right. It's all you. It's all you. Uh, Thursday, when I go back to my, my minor shop, you know, I need basil, baby, basil, you know, <laughs> give me one more, give me one more licorice root, you know, <laughs> sorry, I'm laughing to myself and I should really shut up. Uh, no, no, it, it, it's, it, I, I, you approach it as an athlete as, as I've personally, when I've gone through fat loss and, and some significant bouts, I think the, the most fat I ever, the most weight I ever lost when, when focusing on fat loss was about 90 pounds. Hmm. So I certainly understand that mentality and that, that it's that switch that you flip saying, okay, this is my goal. I need to train for this. Like it's an event. Like I'm prep, like I'm preparing for a competition right now. I'm not competing against anyone unless you're on like one of those shows where you're trying to lose the most weight. Sure. We can talk, we can debate the efficacy of those, but um, yeah, that is a really interesting mindset. Compete like you're a fat loss athlete. I do have to say before, uh, before we get too far away, you did ask me to bring up five hours a week. Yeah. What if you only have, so for example, I taught at this very academic school. And I made a deal with my athletes because, uh, for example, my lawyer, former athlete, my mortician is a former athlete of mine. My doctor is a former athlete of mine. Uh, many of my former athletes are now professors. One's a professor at literature up at Boise State. I've got a professor of ceramics in Texas. Uh, one of my former athletes' name comes up every time they talk about a Supreme Court nomination. I'm very proud of that. So, that's a little bit more important than throwing the discus at the high school state meet, right? Mm. So there was a time where I just decided I was going to have one hour practices. And so it was great. It was wonderful. So one hour a day, the longest part of their week was track meets. And I would tell them, bring your books with you and study on the bus. And what we did is we came up with a program called the transformation program. It was three sets of eight with a minute rest of two exercises, three days a week. The, and then we do a little bit of ab work. Nowadays, I would do um, more suitcase carries and things like that. But that workout took about nine to 14 minutes. So practice started at three. At about 3.15, we'd already gotten our weightlifting in. We walked down a hallway, went outside. My manager had already set up the videos had all the equipment out and we did, it was discus shot and javelin and we had, and we threw against walls because when you throw against a wall, you don't have to chase the discus. Hmm. So we would get up to 500 turns in a practice every day. We would get up to 200 plus to 300 throws a day. And around uh, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we would do two hill sprints. We had a massive hill uh, next to our school and, about 40 meters, but it seemed like it was straight up, my friend. Uh, <laughs> and what happened is, with that, uh, we had the national champion uh, in high schools uh, come out of that situation. Nine straight discus state champions. Uh, we had coaches from all over the United States come to see what we were doing. And basically what I did, David, and this is the key, is I looked at the problem. I looked at what we didn't have. And I said, okay, I can't. I'm not Harry Potter. I can't get the wand. I can't wiggle my nose like the bewitched. 
here's what I can do. Let's pour in as much thought as I can and fix it. So between the transformation program, the throwing in the wall, and the hill sprints was the most successful coach in my life. Everything, and I tell you one thing was funny. Parents would come at about 3.59 and, uh, who had to pick up their kids or some other, uh, and they would see what we are doing, and they would applaud it because they had watched their kids waste their time in peewee football, little league baseball, and finally there it was it was focused, it was tight, and it was a lot of fun because at four o'clock you were free to do whatever you wanted. Some of my good athletes would go and train on their own, and some of my good athletes would go home and prepare themselves for the uh, Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, it's uh, it's a it's an absolute pleasure chatting, and and I really uh, love as as many do, and as you've become known for uh, breaking things down into very understandable components and understanding that oftentimes the overcomplication comes from within. We, we like to overcomplicate things sometimes uh, rather than actually be evidence-based and be feedback-based. So yes. I truly appreciate that insight. Well, and David, there's, there's a concept called phenomenology. And basically, uh, real quick, uh, we, we go to a village and there's a well. And uh, we go to a village and we're thirsty. And a man said, well, there's a well over there. I walk over to the well and I look in there and I see there's water. You walk over and you look down and you say, and there's rocks in the bottom. And a third person, Edna, looks in and says, did you see the frog that was on the rock in the bottom of the water in the well? Which one of us told the truth? Well, we all did. So for me, when we get together as coaches and we get together as trainers and we get together as people who love weightlifting and strength conditioning, our conversations, our, our sharing, I saw a frog, you saw a stone, I see water. Those conversations make us better coaches. And the feedback we get from our athletes and your experiences and my experiences, that's what makes great coaching. And to me, that is one of the missing components in some of the people uh, in our era today. They're not having those conversations that allow their experiences to be shared with other experiences. Understood. Well, Dan, John, thanks so much for joining us. Where is the best place for people to keep up to date with the work you're doing, your speaking schedule, and Ooh, you know, speaking. Your, your, uh, <laughs> well, uh, well, that that might be complex now. But where's the best place for folks to keep up to date with what you're sure. doing? So, okay, let me give you my speaking schedule. Canceled, 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 canceled. <laughs> uh, uh, so, um, well, so on uh, Instagram, Coach Dan John. And then I have this new website, David, that I'm very proud of. It's called danjohnuniversity.com. Uh, folks, if you type in in large letters, Corona, uh, we give you this. Um, it's we. It, it turns out to be like $10 a month for it, uh, basically a third or a fifth of the price. But during this time, I want to make sure people are getting, there's tons of essays, there's tons of downloadable books, there's tons of videos on there, tons of podcasts. There's this great thing called the workout generator. I'm not selling it, David. I'm just saying I'm so proud of when this thing hit, danjohnuniversity.com was a, is a great solution for anybody, a homebound trainer. Uh, I, you type in, all you have to do is push some buttons to tell me what equipment you have, and then we generate workouts for you. I love it, man. 
Awesome. Well, Dan, John, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure. Really appreciate your time and hope you and yours, yours are well during uh, uh, a series of canceled speaking events. Cancel, 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 cancel. <laughs> hey, David, you are an absolute joy. Uh, great interviewer. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. <laughs>